Good morning to each of you, and I want to join with the others in welcoming you to the assembly today and to this meeting. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to share this time with you, and uh, I count it a, not just an honor, but a, a really important duty to talk to you about the Word of God this week and to rightly represent what the Scriptures teach. That's my heart's desire in this matter, and I hope that the things that we study together from God's Word will be things that you find uplifting, things that you can use to draw closer to God in your daily walk. Brother uh, Yancey suggested that I sort of give you a rundown of the things that we're going to talk about this week as it relates to the book of Ecclesiastes, so I want to do that for you right now. I suspect a good many of you have done some reading in Ecclesiastes in anticipation of this meeting. And we had the first chapter read in our hearing this morning. And if you've read much or thought much about Ecclesiastes, something that's bound to press heavy on your mind is this repeated concept of all being vanity and all being a, a grasping for the wind or vexation of spirit. And you might think of it as a depressing book. But I want to tell you that Ecclesiastes, though it may not sound this way at first reading, is a message of hope. It's a message that shows us how to live life with a sense of meaning and a sense of value and a sense of purpose. It contains a message that will help us to understand what we might do with our life's pursuits and with our frame of mind about these pursuits that would cause us to just spin our wheels until we die. And waste our lives away in meaningless pursuits. But it also shows us how we can step away from that and step towards a life of meaning in the way that we live our daily lives. This morning in our study, we're going to talk about the life of Solomon, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. With different books, sometimes knowing a lot about the author and his life is, is helpful and sometimes it's not so much needful in understanding the message of the book. A, a, a great advantage in our perspective of Ecclesiastes if we have a better perspective of Solomon's life. So this morning we're going to talk about Solomon's life and where Ecclesiastes may have fit within that lifespan. God willing, this afternoon we're going to talk about different views on the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's very important for our larger uh, pursuits this week in studying the book because there are different ideas. Is, is Ecclesiastes an inspired record? of Solomon's life spiraling out of control and his attitudes changing and his thinking becoming wrong. You know, when we studied Solomon's life this morning, we're going to learn that he uh, descended away from serving God deeper into idolatry. And there was a apparently a very long period in his life where he was no longer fully faithful to God. Did the idolatry corrupt his thinking and did he leave this world with that corrupted frame of mind and his Ecclesiastes and inspired record? of that corrupted thinking with this hopeless message? Well, I don't believe that to be the case, but we'll talk about that this afternoon and talk about a proper perspective from which we can understand the book of Ecclesiastes. Then, Lord willing, in the following evenings, Monday through Thursday evening, we're going to talk specifically about different lessons that we learn from Ecclesiastes. We'll talk about what it says about vanity and value in life, what is vain and what has purpose. We'll talk about what it says about the way we can do certain things and enjoy things that this life has to offer to us 
specific kind of lens of perspective, the way that we view what's important in life and why we do what we do and other general wisdom and life lessons. And finally, Thursday night we'll come down to Solomon's conclusions that he drew in that book. Of course, that won't complete the meeting for us, so what we'll do the remainder of the time in our meeting this weekend, is, or this week rather, is to discuss other lessons from Scripture that connect back to things that we learn from the book of Ecclesiastes. In the teachings of Christ and in His ministry, we find Him encountering a man that we know as the rich young ruler. We're going to study about him, Lord willing, and talk about what he learned and what his life illustrates, what his choices teach to you and I, and some of those will be lessons that we can lay alongside things that we learn from the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to talk about the prophecies of Christ in the sense or the perspective of the rescue mission that he brings. How he's come to earth to save us specifically from sin, death, and separation from God. And how that, that rescue mission is what makes the message of hope in Ecclesiastes. Then we're going to talk about another character that we know from Christ's ministry and his teaching, one named Lazarus that we read about in Luke's gospel. Lazarus's life was a very sad life, apparently, or at least a portion of it was, because we find him in the story that Christ tells, laying at a rich man's gate in abject poverty and sickness and in suffering. And there'll be things that we learn from his life and his example and what happened when he crossed over the river of death lay right alongside lessons that we seem to learn <coughs> and then our closing study Sunday afternoon I hope you can be here for every one of these our closing study is going to be about lessons that David tried to teach Solomon from his deathbed David being the king who was Solomon's father and Solomon being the author of Ecclesiastes it will be a great retrospective on our week of studies together to think about the, the spiritual message that David that's a lineup of what we'll do during the week. And uh, the daytime studies will be about some things relating to the, the story of Ruth. We won't concern ourselves with that right now. Right now, let's get right into our study of Ecclesiastes. Let's look at Solomon's birth. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 24 and 25, <clears throat> this is uh, on the, uh, 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 the aftermath of David committing adultery with Bathsheba, and eventually they became married, and it says... David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, and he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So, after David's uh, sin with Bathsheba and some things that happened there, their baby that was a result of that initial adultery passed away, and next along to that union comes the birth of Solomon. So think about Solomon's life in the perspective of what kind of family he was born into and what kind of man his father was and what kind of experiences we might imagine him having as a young man growing up as that would flavor our perspective of things he says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon came along at a difficult time in his father's life. You know, David, we read about him being a good man, but yet there being this one sort of a dominant mistake he made in his life when he gave in to temptation and committed adultery with Bathsheba. Breaks our heart because he's a great hero of faith and we read of him doing all these great things and, 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 and slaying the giant, you know, Goliath. 
in First Samuel, and it's like the story that builds this great hero, and you can't stand to see him fall. And here he is, falling to temptation. What a low moment that must have been in his life. We read in some of the Psalms where David struggled and grappled with his, his grief and his guilt over what he had done that was wrong, and yet at the same time, trusting in God's mercy and depending on God to forgive him. And that's the kind of cauldron that Solomon was cooked in. That's the kind of upbringing that he knew was having a father who had that struggle. Consider the impressions upon Solomon and his youth. There are some statements made in some of the instances where David uh, sings or writes about his grief over his sin that sort of implied a lot of people knew about what he had done and might have talked about what he had done. So it's not unreasonable to think that as a young man growing up, Solomon might have heard a lot of bad things said about his dad. And his dad committing adultery with Bathsheba and having Bathsheba's husband killed and all the things that happened in that story. Think about how that would influence Solomon. Consider the legacy that David left behind. You know, there's that negative picture of David's adultery, but that's one event from his life. From a different perspective, we could see a lot of great and mighty things that he did. The man was a wonderful king, arguably Israel's best king until Jesus. What's it like to try to live up to that legacy? What's it like to try to step into your father's place and live there in his shadow and try to also be a great king and that's a hard act to follow in spite of the fact that David had his weakness with Bathsheba. In a lot of other ways, he was a wonderful man. So we'll think about that as we consider his book. Consider Solomon's reign. What he did during his reign. What he did right and what he did wrong. And did his daddy's mistake become an unfortunate pattern for his life? Consider where Ecclesiastes fit in Solomon's life. I will tell you, I believe that Ecclesiastes is an inspired record of Solomon teaching an inspired message that's true. I know some people believe it's an inspired narrative about Solomon teaching mistaken ideas. We'll deal with that this afternoon. But for now, let's just suffice to say that I believe the message of the book is true and accurate. So where does it fit in his life? I'll just be real honest with you. Here's what I want to believe. I want to believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes right near the end of his life. He had descended into idolatry. He'd gone off after these pagan gods. And somewhere along the way before he died, he realized what an awful mistake it was. And he sat down and penned Ecclesiastes as a retrospective on his life. And it sort of represents him getting it right just before the end. That's what I want to believe. That might not be the case, but I believe there are some statements in the book of Ecclesiastes that sort of give us the indication that Solomon's not writing that in the early years or the middle years, but he's writing it near the end of his life, looking across a few good years, a lot of wasted years, a lot of wasted time. We lost a handle on what was really important in life and what really mattered most. I believe when we read the message of Ecclesiastes, that message is certainly true, whether or not it fit at the end of his life, like I want to believe, that's certainly true of the message of the book. Now let's think about these things individually. David's legacy, look at the good side of it, first of all. The Bible says in 1 Kings 15 and 5, David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him in all the days of his life, saying only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And that is the husband of Bathsheba. And so that one statement there is made intended to engulf the whole story there of what happened. How David committed adultery with Bathsheba and eventually had Uriah 
uh, killed by abandoning him in battle. And so that statement there summarizes that whole episode with Bathsheba and the circumstance with her husband being killed. He's saying outside of that, he was a good man. Now, I know there are a couple of other instances we can read about in David's life where he might have made a mistake. But as far as the Lord's reflection on David's life and the big picture of things, he got it right except for this deal. And evidently that in God's perspective here of this narrative in 1 Kings 15, that's the one biggie that David did wrong. Well, how many of us can say that our lives were really good except for just one mistake? Well, I know I can. I wish I could, but I can't say that. And I imagine a lot of us feel that way. But you think about that and you think about the legacy that that leaves for David's children to walk in and some appear to have walked in that legacy and some appear to have betrayed that legacy and that's a sad thing. Solomon started out trying to walk in that legacy but he lost his way at one point. As we think about the good things with David, we focus, we can't help but focus on the godliness. David did that which was right. The book of Acts summarizes here in Acts 13, one of Paul's sermons summarizes the life of the, of, of the king. When he said, when he turned and removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. How many times do we hear somebody being described as a man after God's own heart? That's, that's, that's walking tall. Let's get it right. When you're a man after God's own heart. What made David a man after God's own heart? Well, this passage seems to indicate that the fact that he could fulfill God's will, that's what made him a man after God's own heart. David had an obedient heart. In spite of his mistake with Bathsheba and the other things associated with that, we can see a lot of other moments in his life where his will, his desire, and his fruit showed it. He wanted to submit to God and do what God wanted him to do. The fact that he would fulfill God's will, that he would fall into God's plan and, and, and be a part of bringing about God's will, that's something that God appreciated about him. Think about David. Think about the temple. Israel... At one time, they worshiped God in, in, in a way that involved the tabernacle, a, a portable tent-like structure that was very central to their worship, according to those who were small. Well, that was eventually uh, remade into a, a permanent building, a temple. And David's the man that initiated that work. He looked at his house. He saw his wealth. He looked out there at the tabernacle and said, it's not right for me to have a nicer house than God has. So he wanted to build a, a good temple where they could go and worship God. God wouldn't let him do that. Because he had been a man of war and spilled much blood. However, God would let him initiate that work. In 1 Chronicles 29, verse 1, David, nearing the end of his reign, leaves that work for Solomon. He said further, For David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom alone a God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great. For the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. So David here making a kind of a sales pitch to Israel. Let's all chip in and donate supplies for the construction of this temple. And look what he does in doing this. He's taking his legacy and he's placing it upon Solomon's head. So Solomon, as a young king, has to carry this heavy burden on his shoulders. I've got to build a house and it's got to be special because it's for God and not man. So the goodness that we see in David's life is something that he actively sought to confer over to Solomon and his son. There's messianic promise in David's life. When you read in the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah, the Christ, 
We read very often about how he's thought of as the son of David. He's in several prophecies referred to as the branch. And that means he's the scion of David. He's the branch of the offshoot within David's family that would come to be the savior of the world. So David's family legacy carries a, a hefty thing here with this messianic promise to save the world, the world's very hopes for meaning in life and hope in eternity rest on Messiah being born into David's family line, and that included Solomon's family line. Second Samuel 7, we find Nathan the prophet speaking to David about this messianic promise. I don't want to go into a lot of detail about this, just enough to show that this is something that Solomon carried. As he began his reign, it says, When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, sometime when you're studying Acts 2, observe that in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, about verse 29, brought this prophecy up and made reference to it and showed it being fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. How that Christ is the offspring of David came and would establish the church and reign in his throne uh, in his kingdom forever. So Christ is the fulfillment of this. But Solomon saw himself in this prophecy because he foreshadowed Christ's work. Just like Solomon built the temple, Christ built the church. And so when we turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 20, the Lord hath performed his word that he spake. I have risen up in the room of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. When Solomon thought about this promise that Nathan made to David, he saw himself. When he completed that temple, he said, I've done what the prophet said I was supposed to do. And that's true in the sense that that foretells Solomon as a shadow of Christ. Christ being the the deeper fulfillment of this expectation as we read the Apostle Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2. But for our present purposes, think about that legacy that David left. And Solomon seizing that legacy which joined him to the legacy of this messianic promise. But there was the bad side of David. There's that deal with his adultery. And we read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2 through 4. It happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is, not, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. It just breaks your heart to see our hero fall. But he fell. You think about that bad legacy and then you think about Solomon's reign. What was David's downfall? The beauty of someone else's wife. The beauty of another woman beside his own. What do you see happening in Solomon's life? You read what he says about the women in his family in the book of Ecclesiastes. You see a retrospect on his downfall. David's problem in relatively small measures became an enormous problem for Solomon. Not all of those parents' faults. We kind of think about the example we set in front of our children. When we look at Solomon's reign, we see him picking up the good, but we also see him picking up the bad. Look at the temple. It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, 
in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. So he embraced this time to build the temple. And in verse 37 and 38 of that same chapter, he tells us that it was the fourth year that the foundation was laid, and then the eleventh year the house was finished. So it took him about seven years to build that temple, didn't he? That's a long time. But if you think of a building, it takes seven years to build. That's an elaborate building. So he embraced that aspect of his legacy. There are different uh, attempts been made to try to reconstruct Solomon's temple, uh, at least in model form, based on the description we have in Scripture. I have no clue how accurate these may be, but based on the description, it, some say it could have looked something like this. I'm putting this picture up here for you to think about when we get over in Ecclesiastes and read about what he said about building big things and how vain it is. You think it was vain for him to do this for God? What I'm trying to say is there's a, there's a lot that Ecclesiastes says about the vanity in life that's about life viewed through the wrong perspective. But when you view that same life through a better, more godly perspective, all of a sudden things can have value. That's something that we're going to hear over and over in our study this week. Others have depicted the temple looking a little bit more like this. I don't know which one's more right. But it's just another uh, artist attempt to, to give us a picture of what that might have looked like and how grand that might have been. You look up here on this thing. This, these little specks here, that represents people. I mean, that was a big, big, biggity, big, 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 big. Not only that, it was large. <laughs> had lots of gold. Had a lot of other metal works. A lot of fine crap. that vain? Is that a waste of time to do all that for the Lord? Let's look some more at Solomon's reign. Look at how the nation of Israel prospered under his reign. Consider their uh, geographic size. Their geographic size is reflected in places in 1 Kings 4, verse 21. Uh, Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river under the land of the Philistines and of the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Verse 24. For he had dominion over all the rain of his side of this side of the river from Tifsa even to Asa, over all the kings on the side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. Solomon's reign was characterized by the wise manner in which he ruled. One of the first uh, acts we read about his governance there early in his reign is that story about the two women and one of them's baby died, and the other one the baby's still alive, and if you study much about Solomon, you remember the story I'm talking about? how great and how wise and how legendary his wisdom was. That's how, how he governed. That's how Israel got to be so powerful. Was that wisdom useless? Was it vain? Was it worthless? Well, if you've been reading in Ecclesiastes in the last few days, you've got found some passages that sound like it's useless. Well, it depends on how you're using it, what kind of wisdom it is, and what it's being used for. Stay tuned. I'm going to ask you a question. Is there any point in learning anything in life? Is there any point in you learning how to do something better? I mean, after all, we're all just going to die anyway. Then what's going to happen to all your life? You buried a man in southern Kansas the other day that knew more about practice than any man I've ever known. I mean, he could just sit in his chair at the lunch table and tell you about every year and every model and every change and every way to fix it with his eyes shut. He could sit there and imagine how you do this and do that. And when he died, I was thinking how much knowledge was being buried in that grave. Was that worthless? I mean, he's dead now. It was a 
impressive while he's alive, but he's at the end we're all going to meet. What's the value? We can go back to Solomon's day and look at how much he knew, not about trackers, but about trees and about birds and about animals and other things. Was that useless? So does it mean that it's useless for you or for me to try to gain more wisdom about how we live life? Think about the expanse of his reign. It kind of blows the mind when you think about it. From Tifsa, that's way up there. That's north of Damascus. Solomon reigns from up there all the way down through Assyria, those uh, other kingdoms around Edom, Moab, Ammon, all the way down through the Philistines, all the way down to the border of Egypt, way up north through what today would be Lebanon up towards modern-day Turkey. He cut a pretty big swath through the Middle East, didn't he? And what kings there he didn't rule? They were bringing him money and giving it to him. Here, please don't attack us. And they loved him and adored him and honored him and he was great and that's a big map. Imagine the political upheaval today if Israel expanded their borders all the way down right up against Egypt, all the way across over here and got part of Saudi Arabia, went up north and got a big chunk of Jordan, got most of uh, Syria, went up all the way through Lebanon up towards Turkey. Imagine what the world community would be doing if Israel today conquered that much land. That's what Solomon had done. That's how great his reign over Israel was. As a nation, they had great wealth. We read in 2 Chronicles 1 and verse 15, the king made silver and gold at Jerusalem as plenteous as stones. And the cedar trees made he as the sycamore trees that are in, in the vale for abundance. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about all that wealth and said it's useless. Yet here in the narrative of 2 Chronicles, he celebrates that as a, one of the many milestones of Solomon's legacy and his achievements as king. What does that mean for us? Look at his land army. In 1 Kings 10 and verse 26, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. And he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he bestowed into the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. That's a very large army. That's like heavy armor and light armor in modern military terms. All those chariots and all those horsemen. That's, that's a lot of military power that he had at his disposal. There have been archaeological digs where they've unearthed some of the stables where he stored a lot of these horses and their supplies and the chariots and all that sort of thing. Now, over the last several years, they've uncovered a lot of that stuff. You read in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about all these places that he built, like the places that would hold all these horses and chariots. He says it's useless. So does this not mean anything that he accomplished that? Stay tuned. Under Solomon, Israel had a navy. Back then, it was a unique nation that had a strong navy and nations through history that were known for naval power celebrated in history because there were a lot of big nations that didn't have a navy. But under Solomon's reign, Israel had a navy. The king made a navy in ships at Ezion Geber, which is beside Elah. That's down there by the Red Sea. Very unusual for Israel to have a navy back in that day. Solomon also reigned with great wisdom, and he was known for his wisdom. I want you to notice this in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5 through 9. Solomon prayed to God for wisdom. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, and then he goes on and explains how he wanted wisdom. And 
I'll pick it up at verse 7. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go in or come or go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered, nor count for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this by so great a people? I don't know about y'all, but since I was behind a grasshopper, I was taught that this was a shining moment in Solomon's life. He was offered wealth, he was offered wisdom, he was offered longevity of life, and he said, I want wisdom. That was a very humble thing for Solomon to admit, I don't know where I'm coming or going, I need help so I can rule your people. And then you go to Ecclesiastes and he says, it's useless. How's that work? First Kings chapter 4 talks about his wisdom. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding to see much and largeness of heart, even as the sand is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom and some of the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than even the Ezra High and Herman and Chalcol and Darda and the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all nations round about. And he spake. 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005, and he spake of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springeth out of the wall, and he spake also of beasts, and of fowl, and of creeping things, and of fishes, and there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon for all the kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. He spoke all these different proverbs. We've got a book called Proverbs. It's a record of many of the things, certainly not all the things, but many of the things that Solomon said. Ecclesiastes is a record of his wisdom. And this passage celebrates that this wisdom is a gift from God, and what a great thing it is. Were they wasting their time when they went to Solomon for wisdom? In the book of Proverbs, he talked of wisdom as being priceless, valuable above rubies and precious jewels and gold, to be coveted more than anything of this earth in the life. One should crave wisdom. And then you go to Ecclesiastes and he talks about the wisdom as though it's, you know, the guy that's wise, the guy that doesn't have a food, they both want to die, so what's the use? How does that work? I keep throwing out all these questions and, and I know I'm not getting answers yet, but let me just throw you a ball here for a second. Is wisdom here it's about trees and about bees and about birds and about fish? I want to tell you, don't ever question the value of Solomon had two kinds of wisdom. He had the wisdom that's right about the book of Proverbs that tells us the right way to live. And then part of his wisdom was just knowing how to govern and knowing about how to grow trees and knowing how to harvest fish and raise animals and all that sort of thing. Think about that. You think about the two perspectives on all that wisdom. One of them is focused solely on earthly life. And the other one is focused on how we should live this life in our journey towards heaven and life. And as you think about those two kinds of wisdom, think about the recurrence of that phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. Under the sun. Think about that. So many things that we're told are vain are things that are under the sun. Viewed in that perspective of life, so that's all there is. When you look beyond that, things change. 
song about many strange women. God warned him and said they'll turn their heart away after their gods. But he started and he didn't stop, did he? Look at verse uh, 3 there. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And what did these wives do in verse 4? His wives turned away his heart after other gods. He took David's mistake with Bathsheba and went crazy with it, didn't he? That's part of his dad's legacy. His dad was hoping that he wouldn't carry on. But Solomon carried it on in great measure, not just committing a daughter with somebody, but multiplying unto himself. The same problem with the heart of lust and wanting another woman, he, he multiplied that. How many is enough? 700? Not enough. He had 700 wives and then 300 concubines. And they led his heart away from God. Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 26 in retrospect looks back on Solomon's life in talking about Israel's failure and idolatry and says that pagan wisdom, uh, excuse me, pagan women caused him, even him, to sin. Warning about the dangers of this pagan influence. So when we study Ecclesiastes and we read what he says about family and about marriage and about your wife and about trying to find someone that's faithful and, and loyal and reliable... Think about his experience. When you read in Ecclesiastes 2 about his experiment and all the different things he dabbled in to try to find what makes life worth living, think about this window in his life where he just kept marrying more women. That's all part of the experiment you're reading about in Ecclesiastes. When you get to Ecclesiastes 2.17, he says, I hated life. It failed. It didn't work. One woman didn't make him happy, two, not ten, not a hundred, not a thousand. He looked back on that and said, it's vanity. It doesn't work. Ecclesiastes was written by David's son. The words of the preacher, the son of David. Ecclesiastes was written by David's son that was king over Israel. That's Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1 and verse 12. Solomon was David's son who was king over Israel. Therefore, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. I put that in there because, believe it or not, there's a lot of commentaries and uh, Bible students and scholars that will say, no, it wasn't written by, by Solomon. I don't know why they say that, but here we've got pretty good evidence. Ecclesiastes talks about a king who had great wisdom. In 1 Kings 3, we read where Solomon had wisdom like nobody else. Ecclesiastes 1, 16 says the same thing about its author. I have come to great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me. That's Solomon. That's the same guy we've been reading about in all these passages from Kings and Chronicles that talk about this great king named Solomon. Ecclesiastes talks about him setting in order all these different proverbs and writing that which was upright and all these different things that he wrote about and the great wisdom and the songs and all that we read about in 1 Kings chapter 4. Remember that? Ecclesiastes 12 mentions that. Ecclesiastes talks about his projects. I built houses. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. And I made pools of water. Water the, the wood that brings forth trees. Remember all that wisdom he got from God about how to grow trees and how to raise animals and all that? Ecclesiastes talks about him putting that to use. He talks in particular about Solomon building his own house, taking 13 years to build it. And that's what he's talking about in Ecclesiastes 2. As he goes through the different things he did in life, 
He's explaining the way he lived as king of Israel and what worked and what was meaningless and what failed. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 7 and 8, he talks about his wealth when he said, I had great possessions. I gathered me also silver and gold, peculiar treasure of the kings and of the provinces. You see in those passages, Solomon talking about all the things, not to boast of what he had, but to explain how far he went to try to find joy under the sun. Life lived through that perspective of here and now. When I was thinking of you about the study that you're having here this morning and this week, I was thinking a lot about some things that humanist religion teaches and that atheism teaches about what really matters in life, and they all focus on the here and the now. It's all about advancement of yourself, your fun, your life, and the greater advancement of the good of humankind. And as I was thinking about that, and I thought about Solomon's experiment, it occurred to me that Solomon was trying to live life like an atheist with a humanistic purpose. And it left him empty-handed. It left him broken-hearted. It didn't work. Because death confronted him with the fact that he was doing that with a waste of time. I want you to think about that and you think about the conclusions that he discusses in Ecclesiastes and you think about your life and the way you're living it today. Does your life have a sense of hope and a sense of purpose? Does your life have any meaning to it? I will tell you, without God in your life, whatever meaning you find is not going to last forever. Because someday, you're going to die. You know, they dug up the archaeologists, they dug up all those stables and saw the building. Those were once grand and beautiful, and the man that enjoyed them dead. What is all that today? It's crumbled. They can only find remnants of it. All the, the, the palaces, all the gardens, all the orchards, all the animals, all the knowledge, it's all gone because Solomon is dead. Why would you think that it would be any different for you? The only way your life can really have permanent meaning is for you to have a relationship with God. And this congregation here wants you to have that opportunity to have that relationship. If you understand what you need to do to enter a relationship with God, there are men here who are willing and ready to help you in obeying the gospel. If you don't know what to do, but you want to have a relationship with God, there are people here that are willing and ready and able to open up God's Word and show them. So if we can assist you in starting a relationship with God so that your life can have hope and have meaning and have value, we want to help you with that. If you're a Christian and you're struggling with life, and you need the church's help and the church's prayers with you as you try to find meaning and value in your life, we'd love to help you with that. If we can help you in any way, please come. Have a seat.